One of the more frightening developments of the 20th century was the invention and the use of nuclear weapons. Things got especially tense after both the U.S. and the Soviet Union had atomic bombs and the ability to launch them halfway around the world. And people in both countries were really frightened about the possibility of a nuclear attack. And so here in this country, the government wanted to do something to try to settle some fears and give people a sense that they kind of knew what to do just in case this happened. And so what they developed were some videos, some films that they showed to school-aged children to give them some practical tips of what to do just in case an atomic bomb blew up near them. Sort of in the same vein as doing a fire drill or a tornado drill, they showed them these films to sort of give them a sense of what to do just in case. So we're going to watch a little bit of one of these films, and I want you to tell me what you think about these practical tips. Let's watch. Sundays, holidays, vacation time, we must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. Duck and cover. This family knows what to do, just as your own family should. They know that even a thin cloth helps protect them. Even a newspaper can save you from a bad burn. But the most important thing of all is to duck and cover yourself, especially where your clothes do not cover you. Remember what to do, friends. Now tell me right out loud. What are you supposed to do when you see the flash? Duck. <laughs> I've been humming that ditty all week. Um, I'm not really sure what to think about this. I don't know if it's funny or sad or just strange. I think maybe they used to design back in the 50s uh, picnic blankets made out of lead, and so it sort of made sense what they were doing. The, The fortunate thing about this video is that no one who saw it has had to use any of the tips that are here. Because if they did, we wouldn't be looking back on this as a joke. We would be looking at it as a horrible tragedy. That we tried to prepare ourselves for something, and this is what we offered. Because it's a tragedy when people attempt to protect themselves from something, but they use a strategy that doesn't work, or they use a strategy that makes things worse. Sometimes people try to protect themselves from something they think is a threat, but what they end up doing is just leaving themselves wide open to the real danger. That's what we're going to see in the account we're going to look at tonight. We're going to see people who are desperately trying to protect themselves, but they're using the wrong ways to protect themselves from the wrong things. The section of scripture we're going to be looking at today is in the book of Luke. It's in Luke chapter 22 and 23. We're going to be looking at the events of the night that Jesus was arrested and killed. And in particular, we're going to be paying attention to some of the people that were around Jesus on that night. And what we're going to see is that nearly every person there was acting out of self-defense. They were trying to protect themselves. But what we're also going to see is that every one of their strategies failed to protect them from what the real danger was. Now, this is a longer section of scripture. It's more than I can read out loud in the service here. So I'm going to have to summarize some portions of it, but we're eventually going to narrow in on a few verses in chapter 23. I've put the references to the rest of those sections in your outline, and I want to make sure uh, that you go back and you look at those, maybe sometime this weekend as you're uh, thinking about Easter and Good Friday to go and dig into those passages. There's so much richness there. We're going to be looking at five people, five people around the death of Jesus, and we're going to be asking, how did they try to defend themselves? First person we're going to look at is Peter. 
Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, he has spent the last three years hanging out with Jesus every minute of every day. He has been there for all of the miracles. He has heard all of the teachings. He is one of the top leaders in the inner circle of Jesus' closest group of disciples. But tonight, this night, was easily the lowest moment of his life. And it was all because he was trying to defend himself. And the way he was trying to defend himself was by managing his image. He was trying to defend himself by managing his image. Just hours before this, Peter is at a meal with Jesus, the meal that we have been talking about here at Christ Community for the past seven weeks. And at that meal, Jesus, uh, uh, Peter promises to Jesus, he says, I am going to follow you to the very end. No matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, even if I have to die for you, I'm going to follow you no matter where it takes me. And that resolve barely lasts through the night. Because after dinner, as they're praying together, Jesus is arrested and all of his followers scatter. And Peter does follow Jesus, but he sort of follows him in the shadows. He ends up following him all the way to where Jesus is put on trial at the house of the high priest. And he sneaks in to the courtyard there and kind of just listens in to see what's happening. And as he's standing there, he's kind of warming himself by the fire. And he, he says something and someone hears his accent. And they say, hey, wait a minute. That accent, it's, it's from Galilee. That's the same place that Jesus was from. And so they take a closer look and they say, hey, weren't, weren't you with him? Didn't I see you in the garden when he was arrested? Now, Peter is kind of in a pinch here because now is not the time to be seen as Jesus' right-hand man. So he lies. He swears. He says, I don't know the guy. I've never seen him before. I just sort of followed people in here to see what the action was. But then it happens again and again. Before the rooster crows, Peter has chickened out three times. Now, you can understand it's a life-or-death situation. Peter's got a tough call to make, and his instinct is to protect himself. And you and I, we don't face these sorts of extreme situations on a day-to-day -day basis, but when I read this, I can sympathize with the motives that Peter has here. He's thinking the sort of things that you and I think all the time. He's looking around, and he's seeing the people around him, and he realizes that they're sizing him up, that they're, they're formulating an opinion of him in their mind. That, that, that they're, they're trying to categorize him, they're trying to figure out who he is, and their opinion of him is going to affect him. It's going to matter to him. And so what does he do? He tries to save face. He manages his image. He, he wants to make sure that they see something that they approve of. He wants to make sure that, that they like him. He thinks what we often think, I'm going to be okay, my life's going to be okay, this situation is going to be okay if I can control what all these people think about me. You ever do that? Maybe it's in, in social situations, simple things where you just change how you behave around different people. You act differently, inconsistently, depending on who you're with, you know, at work or at, at school. Maybe you compromise something you believe in or you do things that you know you shouldn't do just to get the approval of others. Or maybe it's a little deeper. There's something that's hidden in your life and you just don't want it to be seen. Maybe it's a, a, an issue going on in your family, your marriage with your kids, with, with your parents. And you don't want that to be shown, even though you know that something needs to be addressed. It's easier to just go out into the world and sort of act like a happy, healthy family with nothing wrong than to invite people in and risk them seeing what's going on. Or maybe it's even deeper. And you've got a secret that only you know about. A habit, an addiction, 
something that's destroying you from the inside, a pattern in your life you know is sinful, but you don't want to see what happens if it comes to light. And so you keep it hidden, even if that keeps you trapped. So much of our life is spent expending energy and time trying to make sure that no one sees the real us. To make sure that no one discovers the truth. We can never be honest. We can never be authentic with the people around us because we've got these well-cultivated public images that we put out to make sure that people approve of us, think well of us. We end up in a place where what other people think about us matters more than what God thinks about us. And Peter was in that place. And he tried to defend himself by managing his image. But Peter wasn't the only one that night who was trying to protect himself. I also think about the religious leaders, these chief priests and the teachers of the law who have arrested Jesus. And their strategy for defending themselves was to maintain their control. They're trying to maintain their control. These leaders have been watching Jesus for three years, and they're getting more and more concerned about him. Because Jesus has been touring the country... And what he's doing is he's gathering this huge following. He's creating a lot of buzz. And in his teaching, he's been really critical of the status quo. He's been taking aim at the religious leaders. He's been taking aim at the corrupt system that they're running. And over time, these leaders are watching him, and they're not sure he's a good guy. And then he shows up in Jerusalem just a few days before this story. And he, he comes in, and this huge crowd of people, they're gathered around, and they're cheering for him, and they're, they're excited to see him. They're waving their palm branches, and they're throwing down their coats, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's got a lot of people who think he's a savior, who think he's a messiah, and that makes them even more nervous. And then, to make matters worse, he spends most of that week hanging out in the temple, debating with the religious leaders criticizing the religious leaders, pointing out publicly all the things they've done wrong, all the ways they've misled people, all the corruption, all of the sins that they have committed. And he has undermined them in front of people, and now they're striking back. They say, it is time to reassert our power. We are clamping down, taking the reins. They've worked to preserve a system. That system keeps them stable and in charge. And so now they're defending themselves by, by taking control of that system again. You ever do this? You, you might not be in charge of a, a religious system for a whole nation, but maybe you do what I've done, where you take control of a situation when you feel threatened. Maybe it's in your family life where you feel like you've always got to get your way with your spouse, or you're overbearing with your children, or maybe you're in a dating relationship or a friendship and you're always manipulating the other person to behave in the way that you want them to behave. Or maybe at work you have a hard time relinquishing responsibility to other people and authority to other people because you, you don't want them to do things differently than you like. And, and, and maybe you're afraid that they won't do things as well as you can do them. Or maybe you're afraid they'll do them better than you can do them. And so whatever area of life it is, you, you make sure that you're in charge, you're in control, that you've got things handled because you think if that's the case, you're going to be safe, you're gonna, things are going to turn out well for you, you're going to get what you want. You ever do that? Here's the question. How's that working out for you? Does it really give life to hold on with such a tight grip to control? Does it really help you flourish as a human being? The religious leaders thought it would give them life, and so they're desperate to hold on to their power. They're desperate enough that they're willing to have a man killed. So they take Jesus, and they bring him to Pilate. Now, Pilate is the Roman governor. He's in charge of the region. 
And Pilate, he's not threatened by Jesus in the same way that these religious leaders are. He's not worried that his power is going to be taken away from him. So his strategy is a little different. His strategy for defending himself is avoiding conflict. He's avoiding conflict to defend himself. I mean, Pilate's main job here is to keep the peace. And it's Passover time in Israel, which is a huge national holiday. And patriotic sentiments are at an all-time high. And so this is the time when wannabe revolutionaries usually do something stupid. And Pilate knows he's got to hang out in Jerusalem. That's not his normal headquarters. But he's there this week because he knows if something gets out of hand, he's got to step in and deal with it. So when the religious leaders bring Jesus to him, he's thinking, oh, not again. Not another year with another problem. Do we really have to do this? Can we just get through this without a fight? Can we just not have a conflict this time? And so when Pilate actually interviews Jesus, I think he was probably a little relieved to find out that he hadn't actually broken any laws. I mean, he, he wasn't really a revolutionary, and Pilate knew revolutionaries. He, he had a few who were uh, in the stocks who were about to be executed the next day. And when he looked at Jesus, he thought, well, this guy might be controversial, but he's no rebel. I mean, when he was arrested, he told everybody to lay down their arms because he wasn't going to fight back. Like, this guy's not starting a war. He's not, he's not trying to overthrow the government here. So what's the big deal? Let's just let him go. No big deal. But then the religious leaders say, no, no, no. He's guilty. We got to have him killed. Pilate says, what's the charge? What, how, what am I going to say he did? And they say, no, crucify him, crucify him. They stir up the crowd to start chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And then all of a sudden, Pilate's got a serious problem. He has an angry mob. And he's got to choose. He's either got to face that angry mob or he's got to kill an innocent man. He's got to do what's right and face the consequences or he can do what's wrong and let everything go back to being peaceful and easy. And he chooses to sacrifice his conscience for the sake of peace. He condemns a good man in order to defend himself. You ever done something like this? Maybe you've not led someone to their death, but you ever do that where you take the path of least resistance just to keep other people happy? I mean, I can think of situations where people have asked me my opinion about something or they've raised up a topic that's kind of controversial and maybe it has something to do with my faith. And it's one of those moments where you know I'm supposed to do something here. I'm supposed to say something here. I'm supposed to bear witness to Jesus here. But you're afraid of how they're going to react. And I've had those moments where I've changed the topic or maybe I've misled people about what I thought about that subject because I didn't want to start a fight. Or maybe you've been in a situation like this where where people are talking trash about someone. Maybe you're actually hanging out with a group of people and this person was there and everybody's acting buddy-buddy with them and all of a sudden when they leave, the conversation changes. They're making fun of him. They're talking bad about him behind his back. I've been in those situations. And I can tell you that oftentimes I just remain silent. I don't stand up for him. I don't get this guy's back. Sometimes I even join in just to, to fit in. You ever do that? There could be bigger situations than that. But we compromise what's right in order to avoid a conflict. The conflict feels threatening. The tension feels hard. So we avoid it to protect ourselves. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. Sometimes you should make peace. But as a habit, as a lifestyle, and in situations where there's something moral on the line, what does it actually do to your life? Where does that lead in the long run? Does it cause you to grow and, and, and have wholeness as a person? Or does it make you more afraid and defensive and small? 
What are the consequences of that kind of strategy? Well, for Pilate, avoiding conflict put Jesus on the cross. So Jesus is taken away. Pilate's soldiers torture him. They lead him up a hill, nail him to a cross, and leave him there to die. And on the way, they also crucify two criminals on either side of Jesus. Now, you may have heard about these criminals before. Oftentimes, they're referred to as thieves, but that's not quite the right word to translate the term that's used for them. They're not pickpockets or burglars. No one gets crucified for breaking and entering. A cross is reserved for people who defy the Roman government. It's a public statement about people who would think of raising up arms, which means that these guys are people who are perceived as threats. They're people who have participated in some kind of revolt. And I imagine that they're the sort of people who are just fed up with the system. They're used to seeing corrupt rulers, and they're used to seeing all sorts of oppression and injustice, and they see it all, and they see through it. And so they join a revolution because they want to fight against this. And it turns out even the revolution fails them. And now they're paying the price. So one of these rebels is hanging there next to Jesus... And you got to think about the bitterness that's in his heart. Because what does he choose to do but to yell and mock Jesus? Another guy hanging on the cross. He's hanging on a cross. And he's so angry that he decides to make fun of the person next to him. He's built up this cynicism. He, he looks at this guy who everybody says was a liberator, a rescuer, a healer. And from his perspective, he's just another failed promise, one more sham savior. He, he says, how's that Messiah thing working out for you, Jesus? What are you going to do now? The criminal is attempting to protect himself by tearing others down, even Jesus. Maybe this is you. Maybe you have that sort of cynical outlook. Your BS detector is set for high. You've seen enough to know that nothing lives up to the hype. No government, no institution, no leader, no relationship, no religion. When things look good, it's all going to turn out to be false advertising. It's just a bait and switch. And so you're used to seeing through things. You look through the facade to the sickness behind it. And sometimes that comes out in the form of mockery, derision. You tear things down if they look too good to be true. I think about a guy that I knew a number of years ago. He was dating a woman who uh, became a follower of Jesus. And when this happened, he decided he would check out this whole Jesus thing for himself and so he kind of dabbled in Christianity for a year or so, and he could never fully sort of jump in with both feet. Part of the problem was that he had a lot of pain in his life. A lot of disappointment had happened to him. A lot of things had failed him. And so whenever something good happened in his life, he always, he always kind of uh, was suspicious of it. He, he, he saw people being kind to him, and he assumed that they had an agenda, that they had ulterior motives. If something that he had prayed for happened, he just assumed it was a coincidence and wrote it off. He hated it. He hated it when people actually felt happy about their own lives because he assumed that they were naive. They didn't know how the real world worked. So he would mock people like that. Part of the problem here, though, was that there were things about his life that he knew were incompatible with following Jesus, that if he actually followed Jesus, he'd have to address. And so his cynicism was kind of a way of deflecting that. He, if he could tear down Christians and religion and Jesus and all of that, then he didn't have to own up to the truth about his own life. The truth that most of the mess that he was experiencing was his own doing. He, he thought that if he could show that everybody else was just as messed up as he was, if he could find religious people who had problems too, then he could avoid the implications of faith for his behavior and his life. You ever do this? 
Some of you are doing it right now. You're using cynicism as a way of protecting yourself. You know that the problem is once you see something as good or true or beautiful, it makes you vulnerable. You got to let that thing affect you. You have to let it change you. And so if you see something that looks good, you got to tear it down before it affects you, before it changes you. This is what the criminal on the cross is doing. He spent a lifetime doing it, and he does it in his very last moments. But we do it too. What are the ways that you're protecting yourself? Maybe it's one of these. You're managing your image. You're keeping your control. You're avoiding conflict. You're, you're mocking and tearing things down. Or maybe it's something else. But we all do it. We all try to protect ourselves in big and little ways each and every day. And everybody there around Jesus was doing it too, except for one guy. The other criminal hanging on the other cross next to Jesus. Let's read about him. Chapter 23 of Luke, verse 40. The first criminal has been mocking Jesus, and then this is what we read. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The second criminal is there hanging, hearing all these people mock Jesus. And what's interesting is that what we know from the other accounts of this story is that this criminal had actually been joining in in the mockery for a while. The book of Mark tells us that he was yelling at Jesus too with the other, with the other criminal. But at some point, he changes his mind about Jesus. And at that point, he drops his defenses. He gives up all of the strategies that everybody else was using to protect themselves. The second criminal does nothing to defend himself. He does nothing to defend himself. Unlike the first criminal, he stops tearing Jesus down. He, he gives up his cynicism. Unlike Pilate, he doesn't avoid conflict. He actually kind of invites it by rebuking the other criminal. Unlike Peter, he doesn't try to spruce up his image. He's got no image to spruce up. He's hanging on a cross. He, he's, he simply says, I'm getting what I deserve. Unlike the religious leaders, he doesn't uh, pretend like he's in control. He doesn't try to manipulate or maneuver. He, he simply gives up power and pleads for mercy. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There on the cross, at the moment when he realizes who Jesus is, he lays down his defenses. He's wide open. He risks it all and begs Jesus to help him. It's a striking contrast with everybody else around him. And the question that we should ask when we see this is, why in the world would he do that? What would cause someone to trust Jesus in that way? What would cause someone to lay down their defenses and turn over their life to Jesus? What exactly did this criminal see that changed things for him? What caused him to surrender? I, I want to suggest that there's at least two things. First thing that happened to him is that his eyes were opened to the God he couldn't defend himself from. His eyes were open to the God that he couldn't defend himself from. This guy is moments from death. It has become clear to him that he cannot avoid what is coming. Most of us spend our time not thinking about death. As soon as that prospect comes into our mind, we push it out as quickly as it came. But for this guy, there is no avoiding it. It is plain as day. In a very short amount of time, he's about to meet his maker. And when that happens, none of his defenses are going to matter. I mean, most of us spend our time defending ourselves from the wrong things. We're defending ourselves on a horizontal level from all of the people around us, from their, their actions and their opinions. 
And our real problem is not other people. Our real problem is God. That's why the second criminal says to the first criminal, don't you fear God? At the end of life, that's the only question that matters. Don't you fear God? None of our ways of defending ourselves in this life are going to matter when we're face to face with him. You can manage your image all you want with other people, but you can't manage your image before the one who knows all and sees all. You can try to be in as much power and as much control as you can in this life, but before the Almighty, there's no question of who's in control. You can try to avoid conflict with every person around you, but if you don't make peace with God, you're in trouble. And as far as mockery goes, when you're face to face to him, it's not even going to cross your mind. Our strategies to protect ourselves are like newspaper in the face of an atomic bomb. What is the point? The second criminal saw this so clearly. He knew that his real problem was one that he couldn't defend himself against. He was a sinner, he was a rebel, and he was about to face God. And that's our problem too, isn't it? We act like it's not, but it is. Every single one of us is going to stand there before God, and the real question of our lives is, how's that going to go for you? What's going to happen? And the truth is, all of us are like the criminal. If we were to be punished... We would be punished justly because we would be receiving what our deeds deserve. It's a problem we cannot defend ourselves from. And that's why it's such good news that there was another thing the criminal realized. The other thing that happened to him was that his eyes were opened to the God who laid down his defenses for him. I mean, think about what the criminal has seen there on the cross. He's seen Jesus, and Jesus has just had one of his best friends betray him. He's just been arrested and dragged from trial to trial all night long, being falsely accused again and again. An angry mob has called for his execution. He has been tortured. He's been beaten. His beard has been pulled out. He has been whipped in the back until his back is torn to shreds. He's been forced to drag a cross up a hill, and then metal stakes have been driven into his legs and his arms, and he's been hung up to suffocate to death. And all of the people who did this to him are standing there right in front of him. And they're mocking him and spitting on him, insulting him. And Jesus the whole time knows he doesn't deserve it. He's totally innocent. This shouldn't be happening. And how does he react? I mean, think about how you would react in that situation. What does Jesus do? Look at verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them. What is Jesus saying here? I mean, Jesus, of all the people who could defend himself, who could protect himself, he could have done it. I mean, he could have managed his image. He could have revealed his glory as the Son of God, and everyone would have been awed by his beauty and his majesty. He could have proven his innocence and silenced the crowd and the religious leaders. He he could have turned the tables of judgment. He didn't have to take the mockery. He could have systematically gone through every person who was there and exposed their corruption and their sin. He could have exerted his control. He's the king of the universe. He could have called down the armies of heaven to defend him. He, He spoke the world into being with a word he could have ended the whole situation. Jesus The one person who had the right to defend himself. The one person who had the power to protect himself from anything. And what does he do? He forgives. He lays down his defenses. 
He doesn't deserve the cross, but he takes it anyway. He takes the punishment of rebels, even though he's innocent. He stands before God and receives our condemnation, the penalty that we deserve. We had earned the cross, and he died on it. This is the astonishing thing about Christianity. This is why we call our story the gospel, which means good news. We have the news that Jesus didn't come to save good people. He didn't come for the heroes and the saints. He came for the broken and the rebels and the failures and the people who had no chance of defending themselves. He came for the bad guys. He came for you. He came for me. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this in Romans chapter 5. He says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, when we were defenseless, when we couldn't do a thing for ourselves, at that time, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for the good guys his faithful friends, his loyal followers. He died for his enemies, for the people who couldn't do anything for themselves. He died for us, and he didn't have to. He chose to. He did it out of love. He laid down his defenses because he loves you. He didn't protect himself because he loves you and he loves me. And seeing this, seeing this is what changed that criminal from mockery to surrender. And it's what changes us too. At some level, it makes sense for us to try to protect ourselves. Because being vulnerable is risky, right? You can't just be vulnerable with anybody. You can't just open yourself to anybody. You've got to open yourself up to someone that you can actually trust. And how do you know if you can trust a person? Well, a sure way to know is if they're the sort of person who puts your needs above theirs. Someone who's willing to sacrifice for you. Someone who's willing to risk things for you. If a person is willing to be vulnerable on your behalf, they are someone that you can be vulnerable with. And that's what we have in Jesus. We can lay down our defenses before Jesus because he laid down his defenses for us. We can place our lives in his hand because he's not going to go to the cross and die the ultimate death and then destroy us and then abandon us. We can actually trust him because he's done this for us. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us to surrender to him. Whether it's the first time you've ever done that or you've been following him for years. He's saying to you, whatever area of your life, whatever whatever you're holding on to, that thing that you're trying to defend, he's saying, stop. Don't defend yourself. Stop trying to protect yourself. That's my job. I'll do this for you. You don't have to do that anymore. You can relax. What would it look like what would it look like if we laid down our defenses? I think at the very least, it would mean that we were honest. Honest about ourselves. Honest that we're sinners. Honest that we don't have things together. Honest that we're guilty. That we have things that we're ashamed of. We wouldn't need to fake it in front of other people anymore. We wouldn't need to pretend in front of God. We could be real. We could be authentic. We can be open with other people. No defenses. No protection. No hiding. Now, for some of you, that sounds really scary. That that sounds really kind of something you're not interested in. But I'm hoping that at least at some level, it also might sound like a relief. It might sound like freedom. 
I mean, think of what it would be like. Think of how you would feel if you didn't have to spend so much of your time and energy trying to keep up your image. If you didn't have to spend so much of your focus trying to, to manage conflicts or, or, or keep your control. What if you could just let the cynicism melt away? How would that change your relationships? How you relate to your coworkers, your boss? What would your family like be like? What would a family be like if all of the members of the family sort of just stopped being defensive? It would be amazing. What would a church be like if everybody decided they weren't going to keep the mask on anymore? They're going to let people in and be honest and real. I don't know about you, but that sounds amazing to me. It sounds like something I want. I want to lay down my defenses. But here's where it starts. It starts at the cross where we admit that we have no defenses before a holy God. It starts at the cross where Jesus laid down his defenses to defend us. It starts at the cross where Jesus says to us the same thing he said to his enemies before him. He says, I forgive you. I love you. Would you come to me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is hard. We don't want to lay down our defenses, even, even as we've been talking. In our hearts, we've, we've had defenses rise up. We've had ways that we've pushed back. And we ask you to overcome those. We want to let you in. God, show us your love, your incredible, amazing love that is unlike anything else we've ever experienced. Show us again the wonder of a defenseless God before a defensive people. And melt us down and bring us to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.